I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I start in handwriting, and then I start typing that, revising as I'm going, while I'm writing the next part in handwriting. So think of the handwriting as moving along like this, and the typing coming along behind it, sort of mopping up, as it were. Uh, while the handwriting keeps on going in front. That's Margaret Atwood, author, of course, of The Handmaid's Tale and its sequel, The Testaments. Her dazzling literary career includes dozens of works of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. In our conversation, we talked about the origins of the dystopian world of The Handmaid's Tale, as well as how she approaches storytelling and the art of writing itself. I'm so happy to be able to talk to you today. I'm I'm such an avid fan of yours. I, I just love your writing. Thank you for being on the show with me. And thank you, and I've always enjoyed your movies. Oh, that's very nice. Thank and you, you just told me a funny story about Toronto. And it's a true story. <laughs> we were shooting in Toronto to make it look like New York, and we shot in an alleyway and dirtied it up so it would look like New York with orange peels all over the place and an empty trash can. We went to lunch, and when we came back, some kind Canadian had cleaned it up for us. <laughs> well, I had heard that story, but I didn't hear that it was you. So I thought maybe somebody had just made it up as a joke, but it, you're telling me it really happened. It became completely an urban legend. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I don't think I've ever met anybody from Canada I didn't like. Well... Well, maybe you should spend more time here. You'd find. I <laughs> said <laughs> we were probably alike all over. <laughs> Something I wanted to ask you about was that I saw you somewhere on the internet say this very interesting thing: that a good way to start Little Red Riding Hood as a story would be to start with the sentence: "It was dark inside the wolf." <laughs> Don't you agree? <laughs> it wouldn't. What a great opening that is. Yeah, well. What, what I wanted to ask you about is I, th- I think I know why I like that as an opening so much. Why do you like it as an opening? Uh, well, first of all, it changes the point of view, you know, what, what you're expecting from the story. And also, it puts the central character in a predicament right on page one. Mm. So if you're inside a wolf, Oh, the reader or listener or viewer immediately wants to know, how are you going to get out? (laughs) (laughs) How how did you get in How did you get in? How are you going to get out? (laughs) You know, that that, getting the audience to ask that question, how did you get inside the wolf, is every playwright's first problem because they feel the need to load you with all this exposition. And the poor actor has to say all the exposition as if it's not exposition. My, my favorite example of that would be a play I imagine about uh, Abraham Lincoln where somebody says to him, well, Mr. Lincoln, the war has been on for three weeks now, as if he hasn't been reading the paper. You know? <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why didn't somebody tell me that? <laughs> I was doing the crossword puzzle. Yeah. So so what I what that reminds me of what uh, Mamet said, David Mamet uh, once that a play should begin late and end early. Oh, uh, he what, means the plot he, or the number of hours spent in the theater. 
uh, it should end. It's, oh, that's uh, a, that's probably a good thing to keep in mind too. <laughs> I think he means where you start with the story. Yeah, you start. Everybody says start at the beginning. Maybe you should start with the the girl in the wolf's belly. Yeah, or maybe it's the grandmother in the wolf's belly. There's 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 another possibility. Right. Right, and and to end it before you have to do a wrap-up where everything's tied up with a bow. Uh, well, that's a good a good way of approaching the endings of novels, too, but it used to be that you had to tie everything up with the bow uh, or the reader would not be happy. Now do you think the reader is not happy if you do tie it up with a bow? Uh, because now it would be considered a 19th century ending, but maybe not tying it up with the bow is a 20th century ending, and maybe we're now into the 21st century and we're going to have to think of some other sort of ending or maybe five endings. You know, in terms of movies, and I, I, I see in your interviews you do pay attention to movies, so this isn't from left field. I thought endings in movies changed with the first Rocky movie. Because he, he, he didn't say, I have to win this fight. He said, I have to go the distance. Uh-huh. And at the end of the movie, he's still standing, but bloody and lost. He's lost the fight, but he's achieved his goal. Well, what does that tell us? What it tells us is that they were thinking of a sequel. <laughs> Yeah, you, you you determined to see the reality behind these things. <laughs> well, I'm thinking of Dracula movies. So you have some Dracula movies. You've got some good Christopher Lee Dracula movies in which mm. Dracula gets the stake through his heart and he sort of vaporizes and blows away. Uh, so how do you how do you do a sequel to that? Well, they 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 did a sequel in which you saw the part the particles coming back together. <laughs> <laughs> reassembling. I guess they just ran the footage backwards. Uh, but you have to get have some way of bringing Dracula back to this earth so that you could have another story about him, don't you? So it is a problem with killing people off at the end. Uh, if you then want more, more of the story, you either have to do a prequel or you have to resurrect them somehow. They weren't really dead. What about your paperback version of The Testaments mm. is coming out now? It is. And it is already out. Yes. And it's a sequel to The Great Handmaid's Tale. Well, the end of The Handmaid's Tale, uh, there's a number of things we don't know, but there's actually two endings. So we know that our central character has made it as far as Bangor, Maine, and town I, a mm. city I used to drive, to drive to on my way to Montreal from Boston. So I have a certain affection for it. Uh, but also it was very important. Um, it's, it's been a very important smuggling coast over the centuries, Maine. Huh. Yeah, it's a good place to smuggle things into or, and out of. Um, so for that reason. But we know she's got that far. But then there's a second ending. And the second ending takes place about 275 years later, at which time Gilead has become uh, a subject for academic study. So what happens to history after its history? It becomes a play about Abraham Lincoln. It becomes a novel about Abraham Lincoln. It becomes a history book about Abraham Lincoln. It becomes 
a theme park about Abraham Lincoln, though I'm not sure there is one of those, or it becomes a symposium, an academic symposium during which people give papers. And and if none of those things happens, uh, or it becomes a television series about Abraham Lincoln, if none of those things happens, then that piece of history has vanished. So we have the symposium on on Gilead, during which the Handmaid's Tale papers presented and commented on, and and from that we learn that Gilead ended. Uh-huh. We're not told how it ended, but we know that it ended. So in in the Testaments, I wanted to go back and see how it might have begun to end, uh-huh. because it is my it's my optimistic belief um, that eventually these totalitarian systems do end one way or another. So they can make room for the next one. Now you stop that. <laughs> it's not very nice. There, it's, it's not very nice. There is some truth to it, however. Well, there is this puzzling fact that under the right circumstances, we humans have this peculiar affinity for having all our decisions made for us. When we get scared enough and we think we don't know what to do and somebody appears who says, I will fix this for you, um, but first we have to get rid of those people because there's always those people who have to be gotten rid of, Um, then a lot of people, if they're very scared, go along with it, partly because they do want whatever it is fixed for them, but also they don't want to be those people. I wonder if you can if you can do totalitarianism without identifying those people. Don't you must maybe you need a common enemy to unify the people in hatred. I, I think you need a, a scapegoat figure onto which all your sins could be loaded, thus making you feel virtuous mm. uh, and and pure, and then um, and then you get rid of those people, but but there is a problem with that, which is the promised uh, golden time fails to arrive. Mm. Even even though you've gotten rid of all of those people, it somehow doesn't materialize, and that's when internal purges start. So that's when Stalin starts the show trials of the thirties. So they had killed lots of those people. They killed the kulaks, and they'd killed. Um, you know, various the Cossacks and other people who, and the bourgeoisie and the aristocrats and lots of people that you needed to kill. Um, but the golden age did not arrive. So whose fault must it be? Since you've gotten rid of all the external those people, it must be betrayal from within. And uh, that gives you the Salem witchcraft trials, not incidentally. That reminds me, you're citing those factual moments in history. It reminds me of your famously often quoted statement that nothing happened in The Handmaid's Tale or in the Testaments that hasn't happened before at some time and in some place. And for those two people in the world who haven't read your books, maybe we ought to let them know that they're pretty extreme things that happen. Women are assigned to certain men to to reproduce. Yeah, not, and, not, not any old woman. It has to be a sinful woman. And since they've redefined uh, what sinful is and, and getting a divorce is now sinful, 
Uh, you, you just have to roll everything back about 100, 150 years, and and you'll be there. Um, so 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 getting a divorce makes you sinful. So so those kinds of women um, get assigned only to elite men because um, in a hierarchy, the elite get extra privileges that other people don't get. So down at the bottom of the social ladder, you only can get an econo wife. And the econo wife has to perform all functions, whereas if you're an elite, you can have an official wife, you can have some servants who are called Marthas, and you can have a handmaid. And the handmaid will have children that will then be um, claimed by the official wife, as in the Bible. It's very biblically literal. And when you think of the control of women's bodies up until Roe versus Wade, you have a historical correlate, right? Well, that's only in the United States. So we take a, a worldwide view, and the launch partner for um, the, testam- the Testaments when we did it last year, and when we're doing it now with the paperback, it's, it's an organization called Equality Now. And they work internationally to rectify laws about women and women's bodies and women's everything uh, that are inequitable. So Equality Now... Um, you can look it up. It's based in New York, and they know a lot of stuff that's going on uh, around the world. So Roe versus Wade was just a little, a little bit of the picture, uh, but it was part of the um, upwelling of the second wave women's movement in the at the end of the sixties and in the I would say first. Uh, part of the 70s, during which a lot, lot of things got changed. It became possible for a married woman to have her own bank account and credit card without the permission of her husband, stuff like that. Divorce laws got changed. Um, how the property got divvied up in a divorce got changed. Um, and then along came the 80s, and that was an era of pushback, and it was the 80s that saw the political rise of the religious right and a number of the things I put into my book is just straight quotes from what people were saying then. They're in a clipping file at the Fisher Library at the University of Toronto. It's interesting. It seems as though you weren't saying, as many people th- thought you were, this could happen. You were saying, this is real. This is happening now. It has happened many times. And it's just like this. And you could put it in a form that allowed them to feel, well, that never happened. Yeah, I put it in a form that allowed to feel that could happen here. Right. So right. I'm I'm one of those people who who believes that anything can happen anywhere given the circumstances because um, human nature has a sort of um, baseline set of emotion, emotions, and one of those is fear. And when the fear level gets high enough, then anything can happen anywhere. After our short break, Margaret Atwood tells me how what she calls her notoriously bad handwriting plays a key role in how she constructs her stories right after this. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. 
it really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on a virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free. But you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Alda Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. On December 14th, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first-ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. Thirteen pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. The Greenberg Prize Award Ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the End Blindness movement, including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. If you want to learn more about End Blindness, you can read about it in Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern at www.endblindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's endblindness2020.com. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Margaret Atwood. You've talked about the importance of keeping a notebook, which made me wonder, I wanted to ask you, I was curious... Does that mean that thoughts are percolating all the time and you want to be ready to get them down when they're ready to come out? That's what I advise. But it also helps if you have legible handwriting. Oh, now I'm out of business. I don't. (laughs) So sometimes I open my notebook and I see these thoughts that I've sat down and I say, what is this? (laughs) What, what, What was I thinking? Uh, to, to be I able to get actually, back to the, the great inspiration that made you yeah, write it down, and you, it's no way. That, well, I actually can't read my own handwriting from time to time, and it is um, fairly notoriously bad. I've heard you say that you take a panoramic view uh, in your writing, and I, and I see that all the time. I see it in your conversation. I see it in your essays. For instance, in, in, a, in a novel, you've said you're more— you're shooting more for what Tolstoy did than Dostoevsky. 
Did I say that? <laughs> no. I think you did. But I think what I think what you meant by it, if if I have the quote right, or, or the sense of what you said right, was that all the factors that impinge on a person's behavior, culturally, geographically, familially, all of those things need to come into play. And it's not just the story of one person behaving a certain way. It's a it's a panoramic view that, that I think you said. And I think I think you were doing that a minute ago when you were talking about it wasn't just Roe v. Wade in America, it was mm-hmm. worldwide. Yes. I I like panoramic views, probably because if I just focused on on Toronto, it wouldn't be very panoramic. <laughs> <laughs> but of course um, But it would be very clean. It would be very clean. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> if you don't mind me getting into it, I'd love to hear from you some of your thoughts about the writing process. Well, what you need is two things. You need an implement to write with, and you need a surface to write on. Um, so were you thinking of it at that level? <laughs> That's maybe more of a mechanical process than I was thinking of. <laughs> It's harder with stone and a chisel and easier with a pencil and paper. Right, but unfortunately with stone and chisel, it lasts longer. Yes, so you, it does. You, you can't, you, it's harder to revise. <laughs> and revision is important to you. Your best friend is the wastebasket, I've heard you say. That is true, and revision is called revision for, for a reason. It's, it's revision. So when you're revising, you're seeing it again. So you've seen what you've written, and then you're seeing... You're seeing that writing uh, from a different perspective. You you once quoted uh, Samuel Beckett when you were saying, fail, fail again, fail better. <laughs> I, ha- I have that on my desk to remind me every time I write. Yeah, well, everybody fails at something yeah. sometimes. That's the, thing, that's the thing we forget. We, I mean, it seems to me that a first draft is supposed to be lousy. It's supposed to have everything in it that could possibly come up. Well, in my case, that's true. Other people are are different. They write differently. So everybody has their own method of writing. And some people have to have the first page perfect before they can go on to the second. Whereas I'm I'm more of a downhill skier, you know, just, just get to the end. And then you can go back and see where you screwed up along the way. Count the trees you've hit on the way down. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we hope not. <laughs> yeah, right. I start in handwriting, which, as I've said, I can't always read. Uh, but, and then I start typing that, revising as I'm going, while I'm writing the next part in handwriting. So think of the handwriting as moving along like this and the typing coming along behind it, sort of mopping up, as it were, uh, while the handwriting keeps on going in front. So in a way, the handwriting is your first stab you, at it and the, in the typing you begin to you got revise? It. You got it, but, oh, that's, oh, that's but really things can move around quite a bit. So something that I think is going to be at the beginning may move quite far back. Uh, into the story. So it used to be called cutting and pasting. Remember when there were actual scissors and scotch tape? So you would cut pieces out of your manuscript and you would paste them somewhere else. And that's where we get the cut and paste term on our computers. And I remember a story about Tolstoy who would 
literally cut strips of his manuscript out with a piece of, with a pair of scissors and wind up with these long, slim strips of paper that had to be repasted together. And he called them his spaghetti. He'd call out to his daughter, where's but my I've spaghetti? I've done that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cutting and pasting. That's why you're so like Tolstoy. Uh, Dostoevsky didn't do that. Yeah, well, I don't know. We don't know what he did, actually. Uh, so so with a lot of people, their, their actual process is completely lost to us. We don't know what they did. Uh, and And yeah. really knowing about somebody's process, unless you're feeling guilty about your own, and you want to know that it's not abnormal to, you know, cut up strips of paper and stick them in all over the place. I also used to use that, do you remember whiteout? So the little brush. Yeah. So I'm also a bad typist. In addition to being a terrible handwriter, I'm a poor typist because I never learned to touch type. So I would have this really messy uh, manuscript that I would I would be whiting out with the little brush and writing things in over top of it. And then I would give that to a real typist uh, who could read my handwriting as much as anyone could. And she would make it into something that looked professional. As much as you, you seem to be saying that people should find their own method, I've heard you give one tip that seems to apply to everybody, yeah. <laughs> every single person, which is so practical. So. As a writer, you should pay attention to your posture. That is a practical tip, yes, because it'll catch up with you sooner or later if you don't. Because we hunt, we hunch over when we type, I guess. Yeah, like that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's very bad. Yes, but my other practical tip is this, and it's for people who have fear of the page, because a lot of people are afraid of the page. They're afraid to actually set things down on it. And the tip in that respect is, Nobody's going to see it unless you allow them to. Mm. So you're the only person involved when you're actually writing. And um, if you end up with something you really hate, nobody need know into the wastebasket it can go. Do you have the experience that some people have that they think with their fingers better than they do with the unaided brain? What would that mean? I wonder. <laughs> what, what the, I'm sorry, I wasn't listening. <laughs> yeah. uh, what I mean is that until you have the pencil in your hand, for some people, mm. or until you have your fingers on a keyboard, mm. you don't really know what you mean to say, but you find out as you put it down. Well, there's some of that, but I, I think it probably applies um, more strictly to artists, visual artists. They really probably do mm. to some extent think with their their fingers, but there is a there's a there's a hand eye brain coordination with human beings that goes it goes way way back in time. So uh, if you look at the numbers of nerve endings involved in your hands, you know very significant. Um, your eye and and your brain and what parts of your brain light up when you're actually writing because language is a mm. very complex mm. thing. And then written language is another jump on top of that. We didn't get written language till uh, several thousand years ago. Before that, it was stories were it was oral storytelling. We had we had lots of language, but we were not setting it down. So that 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 jump 
from from sounds that we make to visual symbols that mean something. Uh, that's that's quite a jump. I think I hear in that, maybe I'm wrong, but I think I hear you saying that the written word has an effect on thinking itself and storytelling itself that m- may not all be good. I don't know. What, 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 what do I hear you saying? You're hearing me saying that they're two different things. Uh, consider the storyteller has to be in the same room as the person who's hearing the story. And until we got radio and, and television and movies. Uh, but originally, the story, the person speaking or storytelling or singing or doing any of those things, the audience and that person would have to be in the same room. Once you have a way of setting down um, a story or a statement or language on a, on a thing, whether it be a stone, a papyrus, a, a vellum, a um, piece of paper, whatever, um, the speaker, as it were, and the listener, as it were, can be in two different places and two different times. So we can read Shakespeare today. We can read Shakespeare's sonnets. We have the illusion that that's his voice speaking to us, but he's not there. So there are lots of, there are lots of things that flow from that set of circumstances and uh, then when the printing press got invented, the statement or a story or a song could be magnified, you know, tremendously, because replicas could be made and distributed all over the place. And you need not necessarily know who the original uh, speaker or uh, fabricator was. That gave us some newspapers, and now it gives us the internet, and it gives us fake news because you don't know where, <laughs> you don't know where this stuff is you coming from. Whereas if you're in the room with the person, you can say, "What did you mean? That's not true. Uh, I heard quite a different version of that. Can you explain this?" And if you were a storyteller telling about Little Red Riding Hood and the Wolf, if the audience didn't like the way it was going, you got the vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> Change the story. We don't like this. We don't like the ending. Get get her out of that wolf now. <laughs> I believe you were in the TV version of Handmaid's Tale as an actress. I, I was, but I didn't have any speaking lines. Um, so that's, But you still were playing a character. Did you find... I was playing a bad character. So much fun. It's so good. They let you do things they won't let you do in real life. Unfortunately, that is yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever played? Have you ever played a really bad character? Really bad? I don't think over, so. O- over and over. Mm, really bad. Pretty bad. I hung a guy up by his thumbs a couple of times. Oh, okay. Um, that's well, you don't, you don't think that's really bad? <laughs> <laughs> you're very, you're very tolerant. <laughs> <laughs> Did you find any difference in the in the process of acting or any similarity to uh, to writing? No. Uh, well, okay. Let me let me revise that. Um, I, I think there's there's a little a little bit of crossover there, but acting, unless you're um, so acting for me goes back to having a puppet show and. In high school, and but but other kinds of acting that that I did as a young person, the part has been written by somebody else. 
So you're enacting it, but you're not um, creating it. Now, quite a lot of creation can go into your enacting, but to be the writer of something is, is um, I think, several steps of megalomaniac um, control above that. I love that expression. Mm-hmm. I, I see we're running out of time, and I don't want to run out of time before I do what we ordinarily do to end the show, which is seven quick questions. Okay. Not, not embarrassing. They're roughly to do with communication. Are you game? They're probably embarrassing, but go ahead. <laughs> First question. What do you wish you really understood? Whoa. Um, yeah, I see already I'm embarrassed because I would have to think quite like I don't have a quick answer. Uh, but let's say I really wish that I understood human nature better than I do. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Well, um, there's several different ways. You're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Or um, maybe you would like to consider that from a different point of view. Oh. I guess it depends how much you've had to drink, which one you say. No, no, I think it depends how wrong they are. Uh, Or you can just say, that's not true. Yeah. Okay, third question. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? (laughs) Maybe you won't think this is a strange question. Uh, So I was doing a a book tour in 1972 in the Ottawa Valley where where they'd never had any um, writers visit them before. And the question was, is your hair really like that or do you get it done? And you explained the part about the pencil and the writing surface. Uh, no, I, I, it was meant to be a compliment, she said, because if I had got it done, she wanted to know where I got it done. <laughs> where she you got it. It. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next question. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, uh, well, um, I'm not sure it's possible. If they're really a compulsive talker, they will go on um, anyway. But you might say... Excuse me, but but your fly is unzipped. (laughs) As I should have expected, that's the only, the most original answer to that question I've got yet. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner party when when there were dinner parties and when hopefully there will be again. You're next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a real conversation with that person? And what do you do? Oh. And you get you get a real conversation. Well, you get half of one anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you don't get to talk for a while. <laughs> That's fine with me. I don't always have to be talking. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next to last. What gives you confidence? What gives me confidence? Well, now. Um, originally or now? Anytime. It's up to you. Okay. Now. I can still make it down the stairs. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a realist talking. I like that. Yeah. Last question. What book changed your life? Mm, Well, going way back when, what book really changed my life? Let's say say Darkness at Noon or possibly 1984. Let's say 1984, which I read when... Uh, it first came out in paperback, which must have been about 1950 or 51. So I must have been 
11 or 12 by the time I got to it. So it certainly um, horrified me and, has, and was very formative in, in my life because the reason The Handmaid's Tale has an historical notes at the end is that so does 1984. By looking at the, the note on Newspeak in standard English in the past tense, we know that the world of 1994 ended. So it's a much more hopeful book than people used to think it was. Well, it's it's also true that our conversation has ended, and I'm really sorry because it's been just great talking with you. I really appreciate your coming on the show. And a pleasure for me. Oh, and that's you. so nice. Thank you. They're great. I hope I, hope I get to talk to you again before too long. And I hope so, too. Bye-bye, Margaret. Bye. been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Margaret Atwood's latest novel, Mad Adam, is the third in a trilogy that started in 2003 with Oryx and Crake. She's also just published a new collection of poetry entitled Dearly. You can check out her entire and astonishing body of work at her website, margaretatwood.ca. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Cassandra Extavor. She's a biologist whose favorite gene is improbably named Oscar. It's the gene that invented sex. But even Oscar has to take second place to her passion for singing. I sometimes tell my students, my science students, that it's not difficult for me to imagine my life without science, even though I've invested a lot of it in science so far. But it's not possible for me to imagine my life without music because that's been there from the beginning. When I sing, I'm calling on a whole different suite of um, faculties and stimuli and skills and attentions that uh, I don't often deploy in my science and vice versa. And so by doing one, I get a break and I get a rest and recovery from the other one. And, um, and that really motivates me and keeps me going to keep them both in my life. Cassandra Extivore, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>